Good. I'd like to ask for your attention for a few considerations about what we're doing. Um, you are um, on the final straight, so to speak. One last scratch on the wall of your dungeon and you're out. <laughs> So I thought it appropriate to uh, do a little retrospective of sati, mindfulness, awareness, presence of mind, uh, uh, of the satipatthanas, um, kind of cover some of the territory and try to language that, not just in Pali, but in, um, in uh, terms and images that and maybe closer to the way we think about ourselves in the hope that this may be more transportable. And look at some of the um, purposes of these exercises we've all been doing these last couple of days. The Satipatthana teachings are quite important. Famous are obviously the two Satipatthana suttas in the middle length sayings and the slightly longer in the long discourses of the Buddha. There's another one in the Vinaya, which is a little abbreviated and much less known is actually a whole collection of teachings on the topic of Satipatthana in the grouped discourses. Many, many smaller teachings and in many ways some of the more fascinating ones. While we have referred in this last week mainly uh, to the largest and in many ways most elaborate uh, discourse. Some of the smaller, uh, ostensibly fra more fragmented teachings in the group discourses are often shedding an interesting light on small aspects. Yeah, some of the analogies are interesting in there or um, fascinating little snippets. Definitely recommended reading. You have uh, very good translations in English. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has done a, a st sterling job on this and uh, Wisdom has published this beautifully. So, a whole Samyutta, the Satipatthana Samyutta, number 46. Um, it's not quite, you know, don't think of it as bedtime reading. Yeah? Uh, these are Sutta texts and they come from a long distance to us. They come from another culture and another time and they need to be translated, not just from Pali into English, but also from English into the language in which you refer to your own experience, which is a second type of translation. And that is basically work. Yeah. So if you're just looking for inspirational reading, uh, stick with contemporary authors. Yeah. They are probably speak, speaking the language which is already your language, but there is a great value of reading stuff that may not at the first glance be, uh, you know, that doesn't just leap off the page uh, and turn into uh, inspiration as soon as you read it, but that may entail some degree of chewing, some degree of, you know, um, waiting till it yields some of the juice it has. Uh, there is plenty of juice in these texts, but to get at that juice basically entails a degree of work. Yeah, we're not 
sometimes we're not used to do. Think of any text that comes from the 4th century BC to you. How many texts do you know from the 4th century BC? Attic comedy, Aristophanes. Ever ever looked one of those up? Why are his jokes no longer funny? Because obviously the context has changed, you know, societies has changed. The stuff here he's referring to has changed, you know. You don't need to go back to the 4th century BC, you can just go back to Gulliver, yeah. Jonathan Swift, children's book, isn't it? You know, Gulliver's Travel is a children's book now in most people's mind, you know. It's a scathing satire on contemporary English society then, but much of the connotations have kind of fallen out. 300 years and that was... You know, we've lost it. Or we painstakingly kind of patch it together, you know, by uh, having studious commentaries and footnoted editions and things like that. So reading Sutta's work, and yet I would suggest it is a work uh, well worthwhile. And the uh, privilege right down there is a Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've got plenty of opportunity. Think that all of you have probably more access to varieties of Buddhist teachings of all lineages, more possibilities to access that stuff than all of the teachers you may be inspired by. Yeah. Think of this, just with modern media, with publication, print, MP3s, texts, you know, all of these traditions have landed in the West. All of them make efforts to disseminate their, their teachings, and you have a better access to a breadth of Buddhist teaching than probably any single teacher who has grown up within his own lineage. This is amazing, isn't it? It's obviously also a burden because you know where, st- where to start. Um, my personal bias, and I, I am slightly biased here, I admit, is start with the Pali Canon and have a look at some of the English translations. Satipatthana Samyutta is a very good start. So, what can we say about the term Sati? Sati, mindfulness, awareness, presence of mind. Sometimes um, I have, in the last week, casually referred to it as attention, which, strictly speaking, is wrong. Sati is more than attention. There's another term for attention called manasikara. Um, and while manasikara is something that happens any mind moment, you know, for our experience to be experienced, a degree of minimal functional attention is necessary. Um, attention is not quite sati yet, to be honest with you. While sati begins with our intentional direction of attentional focus, um, which we all have, otherwise you wouldn't be here. If you don't have that, you have problems, not just with spiritual growth and uh, peace of mind, but you have problems, uh, you know, where people in white skirts tell you uh, nasty clinical diagnoses, you know, which you find in DSM-4. If you don't have elementary forms of sati, you're, you're having mental problems, basically. The Thai word for being crazy is kat sati, yeah, having a broken sati. 
In other words, that's one of the ways our experience can fragment, or we lose the coherence in our experience. So what am I saying is, you cannot have sati without attention. Attention alone is not yet sati. The cultivation of sati, of a mindfulness that has fluidity, that has wholesomeness, that has a relational uh, quality to its objects, hinges on our capacity to attend to something. Now, we all have attention. There is no, it's no secret. Um, we even may have episodic sati. But the real magic of sati kicks in, not with its topical and episodic occurrence, but actually if we start having this stuff in a continual way available. Yeah? That's when really dramatic things start happening. So sati occupies a central role in early Buddhist psychology. It is leading the charts. You have probably no other quality of mind that is listed so many times. You know, It's part of the Eightfold Path. It's part of the five spiritual faculties. It's part of the awakening uh, forces. It's part of the, the spiritual strength. Yeah. You have plenty of occurrences of sati. Like many other oral traditions, early Buddhism loves lists. Yeah. Any oral tradition loves lists because you don't have access to contents page, no glossaries, no indices. You have to keep repeating what is important. And one way you can keep things simplified and can remember what to repeat. You make lists. Yeah? That's what you do when you go shopping, isn't it? You remember there was five things, and then your four are already in your basket. You know there's one missing. Yeah? And it helps you to know that there is one missing. Even if you've forgotten what was missing, you know one is missing. And you think it's not milk, it's not butter, it's not veggies. Oh, it's you know the uh, gorilla grape juice or whatever. Yeah. So that's how these lists come in into being in all early in all oral literatures, and India makes no exception to this. So I won't bore you with those lists anymore. I would like to look at something else, namely how sati is uh, described in terms of images. Sometimes the images. Um, they travel more easily across times, across the centuries, and across the cultures. Because uh, to get a definition across, we need to have a lot of context. We need to do a lot of contextual work, terminology, Indian terms, what they meant then, what they mean now, how we approximate from what we can understand now, what they must have meant for him, and what it was 600 years later when the commentary was written. This is hard work. This can be done, it's probably useful, but an image sometimes is more striking. So what are the images the sutras are using when they speak of sati? There's a number of images. One of them, very striking one, it speaks particularly of bodily awareness, of the mindfulness of body, of, of, of kaya sati. Um, there's an image of a man walking with a bowl full of oil, yeah, brimful, on his head, uh, while the, the bell of the country is dancing and singing. You have a crowd assembled, and our man has to walk through this crowd with that bowl of oil brimful on his head. And the second man walking behind him with a sword drawn, threatening to lop off his head <laughs> at the first drop. Yeah. So imagine, you're walking there with your bowl full of oil through a crowd that is totally focused on the bell there, 
dancing and singing, and you want to walk through there, and the guy be behind you uh, waits, just waits, and is very, very astute. And the Buddha asks, would this man, with his bowl full of oil, would he be lacking in bodily awareness? <laughs> yeah. And you can, almost, you can almost hear the flowers around the speech bubble, isn't it, when he says so. Yeah. So this is a rather stark image, isn't it? At the peril of losing our lives, we are aware of what our bodies are doing, how they move, how they are situated, where they are in respect to gravity, and even in respect to highly inconsiderate other human beings. So this is one of the images. It's quite stark, isn't it? You know, two moments, a little moment of heedlessness, slipping off your object of meditation, and off with your head. Yeah? We would have a pretty grim mortality rate in our <laughs> retreats. If we, were, if we say, if we follow through on that I image, it is, I think Buddhism wouldn't really take off. <laughs> I'm also not sure about, you know, this clinical application of mindfulness. Somehow this wouldn't really take off. You know. <laughs> so there are other images that speak of mindfulness in slightly different ways. We have images where the Buddha describes the driver of a cart as sitting slightly elevated and overlooking the road, overlooking his animals, overlooking his cart load. Uh, and stirring his cart along the road. So he has a kind of circumspection going, a sort of scanning awareness of both the animals, the cart load, his cart, what's happening on the road, the distance. Yeah? So there's a kind of panoramic quality. So he describes this with sati. Or another image speaks of a man going onto the pasada, the upper floor of a building or a, a small tower. Again, the image is one of a panoramic perspective of surroundings, kind of openness, awareness, spaciousness, maybe. Then we have a few images, a very interesting image that speaks of sati as a post hammered in the ground. And on that post there are chains, and on each chain, six chains, exactly. Each chain we have a wild animal. This wild animal is quite wild. It, pulls, it jumps up and down, it makes noises, it runs around, and the chains stop it from running to its uh, respective area where it wants to go. And after a while the animals get more tired, they jump up a little less high, they finally they kind of trot around, finally they sit or lie down. The six animals are our six senses, and the post in the middle that holds these six senses together is sati. Yeah? Sati very clearly in the role of stability, of firmness, of immutability. Yeah? That's the, definitely the samatha aspect of sati. Yeah? That's the quality of sati which takes us into deeper stillness. Yeah? Then we have a, a number of interesting images, two images of a, of a gatekeeper. Sati Dovariko, yeah, the gatekeeper, is um, the first gatekeeper is looking of all the people who come 
who want to enter the city, he, he, he ogles them up and says, you know, do you belong here? Are you, are you, do you live in the city? And if he thinks that they belong to the city and they can convince him, he lets them go in. And if they don't belong to the city, he looks at them and he considers whether he lets them in or not. If he is suspicious that they are not uh, well-intended, he doesn't let them in. So Sati, as a gatekeeper, clearly in a protective role. The commentaries spell it out and say, you know, as mindfulness guards the heart from unwholesome influences and uh, affirms the wholesome influences by letting them enter, but not letting enter the unwholesome ones, in the same way the gatekeeper protects the city from unwholesome subjects. Another image where Sati as a gatekeeper has a very different role. Sati expects messengers from afar. The messengers have very important uh, messages to bring. Um, in fact, messengers are called Samatha and Vipassana by name. And the message they bring is um, a true message. And this true message has to go to the governor of the city in the straightest way. So that the messengers don't get lost in the maze of alleys, in the market stalls, and get bogged down by people who may delay them. The gatekeeper waits, awaits the messenger and accompanies them as the local guide and takes them on the straightest and most direct way to the governor of the city so that they can deliver their crucial message. So Sati very clearly in the role of efficiency yeah, and economy. That's an interesting image, isn't it? Then we have images of a cowherd, a boy, cowherd boy, who has to look after his cows. Two takes. Take one shows the cowherd shortly uh, not shortly, in the monsoon season when the crops are high. Yeah? The fruit is ripe and the cows want to get at the fruit. And the cows want to leave their meadows and run into the fruit and eat the fruit. And our boy has to chase them away, has to make sure the cows don't run away into the field, destroy the crops and eat the, the fruit of the crop. So he shouts at them, he jumps up and down, he has a stick, he beats them, he you know, waves his arm, and he has a hard time. The Buddha calls this practice rakati, to protect. Yeah. Then we have a, the same scenario a few months later. The crops are harvested, uh, the cows have nowhere to go, basically, because there is no temptation, and they, stand, they stay and eat on their meadows. Yeah. And the boy lies in the shadow of a tree or a shrub and just kind of looks over occasionally and says, oh, they're still there, everything is okay, I don't really need to do much. Um, the cows are still there. Yeah? And he establishes what the Buddha calls sati. Yeah? Kind of establishes sati simply acknowledging, okay, everything is all right, no need to intervene, no need to jump up and down, to scream, to use my stick, to wave my arms. Yeah? All he needs to do is to establish sati. That's what the, the sutta says. Then we have a very interesting and unique image. We speak of a, a surgeon. And our surgeon has a patient delivered. It's an ER surgeon. He has a patient delivered. The patient has a narrow wound, has a narrow head sticking in his flesh. The shaft is broken off. So the head is not seen. And it cannot be ascertained what kind of head it is. Is it small? Is it big? 
uh, what shape it has. So our surgeon uh, decks the patient out and looks at the wound and inserts a probe into the wound so as to find out what shape, what depth, what contours this arrowhead buried in the man's flesh or muscle tissue has. So the probe is an instrument that is both fine enough to not aggravate our patient too much, at the same time it is stable enough to give a tactile impression of resistance. Yeah? So the doctor, our surgeon, can ascertain the size and the position and the shape of this arrowhead buried in the man's body. And then quasi-minimally invasively open the wound and remove that arrowhead. Now the, the image for the probe, this is sati. Yeah. Sati in this role in which it helps us to investigate something that cannot be seen by naked eye. Yeah. That's an interesting image. That which the eye does not yet see, sati explores, inquires into, investigates. Yeah. Sati turns up the, um, the lakanas, the, the, char the characteristics. You know? It turns up what is hidden, it, what, is, what is not open to the eye. Um, another image speaks of sati, both in, of um, a plowman having to plow his field. You know? Plowing, the practice of wisdom entails that we prepare the ground, and sati prepares the ground. And the, the image is used for sati there is both the plow, that is sati, and the stick our plowman uses to keep his oxen on a track, to keep his oxen on a, on a straight track. You want to have a straight furrow. So the task is double. One is to press down the plow just enough that the plow really breaks the earth. If you press it down too much, it gets stuck. If you don't press it down enough, it just scratches the surface and doesn't really produce a proper furrow. So the job of our plowman is twofold. A, keeping an eye on his oxen because you don't want a zigzag furrow. Yeah? You want a straight furrow. And at the same time, you want to have the right degree of applied effort on your plow so that the plow beautifully breaks the earth just enough to turn again, to turn what is hidden to the surface. The commentary here helps things along a bit and says, you know, the part of the earth that is hidden is turned up, namely the three characteristics of anicata, impermanence, dukkata, conditionality, and anatata, impersonality. So think of sati as a double task, isn't it? On one hand, enough depth, enough effort, on the other hand, enough direction, enough clarity of line. Yeah? So I think that is a very beautiful image, this double job, sati. Then, let me think, what else do we have? Yeah, maybe I've exhausted it. Oh, no, there's another one. Um, the commentaries and also the Melinda Panna, the book of the questions of King Melinda, uses an example of what sati is not. So, if you throw a gourd into a stream or in a river, into a rivulet, the gourd floats away with the drift. 
Ja. Sati, contrary to the gourd, does not float away. Ja. It does not get caught in the associative discursive drift. Ja. Sati enters and penetrates the object it has chosen. Ja. Sati goes into things and fixes the mind on an object. Ja. I think that's an interesting image as well. How often does our attention simply float away, isn't it? We put something in our mouth, we're interested in that, we turn towards it, we feel available for it, we pick it up, we put it in, we taste it, it's fantastic. Next moment, uh, as soon as we're basically past the first little hit, we turn to our uh, neighbor and tell them when we ate something of a similar taste three years ago, isn't it? And, <laughs> While the, th the thing is still on our tongue, while we could still savor it, what we have looked forward to obtain, what we have clearly rejoiced in getting, what we enjoy, we don't really want to continue enjoying. Instead, we come up with a little story, we rummage around, find a little memory, and then we enjoy speaking about the memory more than savoring what we have anticipated for several minutes while waiting in the line you know, for a food. This is strange, isn't it? Yeah. Even if you, say, wanted to, to go for straight enjoyment, isn't it? It, it's very funny to do that, isn't it? It's very, very funny that even if we wanted sheer pleasure, why are we not willing to maintain the pleasure of actually savoring something we have in our mouth and rather go for the pleasure of cognitively r reminiscing about some pleasure we have had three years ago? Yeah. So this is the drift, obviously the gourd that takes the gourd away, yeah? And you've been sitting here for a few days, you know the gourd floats away quite easily, isn't it? Yeah. So these are images of sati, and you'll notice, if we wanted to put together what that means in terms of you psychological language. So we have spacious open awareness, yeah? Both the man who climbs on the tower and looks down, the driver of his cart. We have an explorative, investigative, inquirative quality in the image of our surgeon. We have a quite um, uh, vigilant, highly prudent, uh, circumspect quality in the image of the man with the bowlful of oil on his head, yeah? risking his life. Then we have uh, the image of efficiency and economy in one of the gatekeepers who takes the messengers right to the governor of the city. Then we have Sati in its protective role in the image of the other gatekeeper. We have Sati in the image of stability in the role of the post that holds down the animals. Um, we have the double task of Sati of effort and direction in the, the, the plowman. And then we have the placid open and spacious attitude of the, the, the cowherd boy after the crops have been harvested, yeah? who simply raises his head, acknowledges everything is still in the green, green segment, so no need to intervene, no need to jump up, and just establishes a spacious awareness and that's enough. Yeah. So this could in some ways be construed quite contradictory, isn't it? If you wanted to have a three-line definition of sati, uh, as some people uh, attempt, uh, then you would find it very hard to come up with a definition that covers all these images, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's fair to acknowledge that any, any attempt to define sati 
will meet with a lot of refractoriness. Yeah? If you think of what that means, that function, what that means in terms of the Buddhist teachings, then it will be very hard to boil that complexity of sati as it is manifested in these images to boil it down to say three crucial definitory terms. Obviously we can still do that but then it means, it means much less than what the Buddha meant with sati. And if it means much less than what the Buddha meant with sati then it's, there's a risk that it is a lot less effective or that it is um, maybe a particular type of attention but it does not have the breaths anymore and maybe also not the efficiency and maybe also not the the power yeah simply of what the Buddha referred to when he gave sati such a central role so if you look at those satipatthanas what can actually be done with those satipatthanas what are they geared for the Buddha suggests four areas in which we should establish sati yeah sati not as Satipatthana not as the foundations for sati, but Satipatthana as the four areas in which we should practice the establishment of sati. That would be a much better translation. Yeah. Notice there's a slight distinction there. If we say Satipatthana as the four foundations of mindfulness, then we say, okay, there is mindfulness and it kind of it grows in four types. This is what it is. Yeah. So Kaya, Vedana, Chitta, Dhamma. But Four areas in which to practice or to cultivate sati means, slightly, means a slightly different thing. Yeah? The emphasis is no longer on the object of sati, but the emphasis is on the doing of sati, on producing sati, on developing, on cultivating, on calling into being sati. Yeah? The shift of emphasis has gone from the thing wherein sati grows to the activity that brings the growth of sati about. That's a shift that I think is an important shift. So the raw material, I think we're familiar. The raw material of the first Satipatthana is anything somatic. If you wanted a psychological shortcut for these four Satipatthanas, you could say these are four different vantage points onto an event in our experience. Yeah. All these Satipatthanas are taking place simultaneously. Well, not quite simultaneously. It depends how big the the unit of time is you take. Yeah? But let's say a generous chunk, say the maximum, the, the furthest, farthest end we take, say three seconds. Yeah? Any event that doesn't go beyond three seconds, so neurologists tell me, is uh, rated as basically something that is of one kind in our mind, that is one event. So Obviously, three seconds is an awful long time for a meditator, isn't it? You can have uh, a lot of things going on in three seconds. You know, worlds can collapse in three seconds. You know, worlds can open up in three seconds. But there is clearly an acknowledgement that our mind groups things together. Yeah? Perceptually, we do that. A perception, a sanya in our mind, is generally a serialized group of sensory contact moments. And chunks of them get packed, bundled together, and then they get a label. So, if I look into Susie's face, if one studies exactly what my eyes are doing, then my eyes are scanning around Susie's nose, around Susie's mouth, and around Susie's eyes in rapid little movements, which you cannot see if you look into my eyes. Susie cannot see that. But if one measures my eye movements, one will see that I kind of um, 
I have a sort of rapid scanning activity going on. And then I bundle, you know, something in my, my brain bundles these visual impulses and puts them together. And the bundle of it is compared with my memory banks. And after enough of this has happened, it says, this is Susie. It looks enough like Susie, this is Susie. Even though she has a new hairdo, or she looks tired this morning, or, you know, she, she's tried a new makeup or something. There's enough semblance to Susie as she's on my memory banks that it must be Susie. Yeah. So I, I get one percept for a number of sensory contact points. Yeah? So we bundle things together. That's what we do. Yeah. Satipatthana practice does, very, uh, does, does, something, does look at some events in my experience. And it's four different vantage points how I look at this event. Any event in my experience has a somatic tone, has a hedonic tone, has an affective tone, has a cognitive uh, dimension. Any, any event. The mildest, the most inane of your thoughts has an affective tone. Whether you notice it or whether you don't notice it, believe me, these satipatthanas refer to something that happens concurrently. Yeah. To practice satipatthana means we choose from which vantage point we look at this experience, we look at this event. Now, some events are very usefully looked at from a somatic point of view. I think I told you the image, the, my, my little analogy of, a, of the TV, basically. It's like you have on all channels, there is all channels are broadcasting simultaneously. Yeah? But you can tune which frequency you pitch into, yeah? you, you tune into. But it doesn't mean that the other channels are not happening. Yeah? They're very much happening. You can just change channel and another, another thing seems to happen. So satipatthanas are happening, happening concurrently. But to practice with satipatthanas means you choose on which channel you're actually relating to that event. If you don't choose, you will be happening to be on channel four. You know, that's where the story goes. That's where the narrative is gone. That's where you have had most training. That's where you have had most encouragement to spend time. Your school system works in a way that you get good marks for having worked on channel four a lot. You can think, you can associate, you can repeat, you can verbalize. This is all channel four. This is the cognitive discursive part of your experience, which we are so highly identified with, which we exchange with, which we communicate about, which we think about. In fact, thinking only occurs on this channel. You need channel four to think. So that's where we spend most of our time. It's not all bad news, you know. In the chattering mind that keeps telling a story, we find basically a degenerate form of that in us which is capable of awakening. You know, the very fundamental capacity to be curious, to investigate, to understand, has as its most degenerative form, you know, the chattering uh, storytelling mind on channel four, which we rate as a oh, meditational hindrance. That's a, just a pale shade of our capacity to identify meaning and to profoundly understand. So it's a nice, I think, way of thinking of one's chattering mind, isn't it? As being a pale shade of one's fundamental capacity to wake up.
rather than think of it as the enemy. Yeah. So being able to switch channels is one of the first skills we learn. Being able to acknowledge our habit to spend on channel four yeah. is probably a first step. And then being able to move, identify those channels in our experience is one of the tasks meditators have. Yeah. Usually these things go so fast that something nice happens and I want it and I get it and it feels good and I think about it and then I feel I'm missing it. Yeah. It goes so fast. And to actually delineate that just because it feels good, I don't need to think about it. Just because um, I like it, it doesn't mean I need to attach to. Just because I don't like it, I don't actually need to get angry. Yeah? There's no law in the universe that says if something unpleasant happens to me, I need to get angry. You know? Now, I tell you, this sounds maybe inane to you, but for me this was a revelation. Yeah? <laughs> As somebody who has really invested in anger and aversion and has, for many years of my life, lived of the energy tap of aversion and dissidence and opposition, it was quite a revelation to see that actually I don't I can have all kinds of unpleasant things happening and I don't need to get angry. There is no law in the universe that compels me to be angry with things I don't like. You know, I can just simply not like them and that's enough. I can stop it there. So one of the purposes of Satipatthana practice is that we can stop. Kaya practice has as a task to still our system. Still the body is easy because we can still the body we learn to sit still. Because we sit still, our breath becomes more quiet. Because the breath becomes more quiet and we put our attention on the breath, and because the mind starts to resemble the things we put our attention on, the mind becomes more quiet when we put it on a more quiet breath that comes from a more quiet body. Yeah? That little principle is the linchpin of Buddhist mind training. Yeah? That the mind starts to resemble the stuff it associates with, it picks up, and it tends to. Yeah? It starts mirroring the stuff you put into it. Yeah? Some dietary circumspection is really a good thing. That's what meditators find out. You know, if, if beans don't agree with your body, you stop eating beans, isn't it? If you can't handle pulses, you give up on pulses. Why not stop putting things into your mind that make the mind nervous, that make it unhappy, that make it um, agitated. It's as simple as that. So one of the ways we learn to still the mind is by bringing attention systematically to body, posture, breath. Simply because these are generally not very fast-paced experiences. Most of the time our bodies are quite slow compared to the movement of thought. Yeah. So if we kind of can attune our attentional focus to bodily processes and sensation, the very attuning to bodily process slows the mind down. Yeah? It suggests to the mind over a number of hours a slowing down, slowing down. If you want to catch a sensation, if you want to catch a breath, slow down, slow down, slow down. Yeah? So the first thing that body awareness does, it teaches us to slow down. It grounds us in a, it de-accelerates the speed we have acquired to keep up with thought. 
Vedana practice helps us to acknowledge the chumping of the mind of the nice things and the chumping away from not so nice things. So if you do that long enough, you become aware that you have actually a choice in whether you chump or not. It can be nice and you don't chump. So Vedana helps us to stop the, the merry-go-round of the mind. If we learn to establish a mindfulness that is no longer dependent on something to be pleasant, you know, because we are highly biased in favor of pleasant things. And one of the things we try to develop in mindfulness, particularly with Vedana practice, is learning to establish a presence of mind that does not depend of, on the pleasantness of what we take note of. Yeah? That we can be aware of things that are neutral or even unpleasant. That's one of the skills we establish when we practice Vedana. Chitta is big stuff. Chitta practice is tough stuff because in Chitta, that's the battleground. Yeah? That's where purification happens. That's where s suffering happens. That's where happiness happens. That's where uh, big emotions happen. Yeah? So the task of Chitta practice is basically probing into, letting go, purifying, strengthening stillness, not identifying with, Bearing, just holding, yeah? acknowledging the, the habitat, acknowledging where we make home, as Christina put it the other day. Yeah? Where do we make homes? Where do we make our home habitually? Yeah? Where do we nest in? Yeah? One of the Pali phrases for this, uh, it's, it's generally negative, it's abhinivesana, where do we go into and nest in? Yeah? Just to acknowledge this. The Buddha counts that we once acknowledge, once we acknowledge what we do, we will stop doing that if it is painful, because we don't want pain. Yeah? We only choose pain because we are not aware how we are, to a large extent, responsible for the creation of pain ourselves. As soon as we notice that we have a choice in doing this and that it is painful, we are generally highly motivated to stop doing that. Yeah? That's what he counts on very much. And people stop doing what makes them unhappy if they notice that they have a choice in this. So if the mind has slowed down, if the mind has become aware of some of its economy of distribution of attention, then it becomes interested what makes it suffer and what makes it happy. Yeah? That's the big dimension of citta uh, nupassana practice. Acknowledging contractedness, acknowledging degrees of anxiety, desire, anger, samadhi, and so forth. Hindrances, awakening factors. As felt qualities in the climate of mind. The last one, Dhamma, is in some way not quite on the same level. It's not, a, strictly speaking, a meditational instruction. It speaks of particular patterns that are particularly pernicious in the case of the hindrances for distilling and for the inside capacity of mind. And it suggests to us that we understand these hindrances. It's not enough to temporarily not have them. You need to understand them. If you remember that little story I told you of Sangharava the Brahman, the problem was not to have the obstacles, the hindrances, but the problem was to not know what to do with them when they occur. You see, it's easy to not have problems if you don't have them. 
Yeah? It's easy to uh, speak about other people's fears. Yeah? It's easy to know uh, good counsel for problems you never encountered in your life. It's a bit different if you're actually in it. Yeah? So the challenge with the hindrances is both to acknowledge they're there and to then know what to do when they arise. Know how to quell them. Know how to bring about qualities that help you still those hindrances. So, the fourth of the Satipatthanas, which has as a raw material, not as an exercise, the raw material for the second I haven't given clearly, isn't it? It's pleasure and displeasure. The raw material for the third, it's emotion, it's affect, it's mood, it's tone, it's basically um, impulse, stuff in your, move, in your heart that moves. Yeah? It's the whole of the seat of your heart, basically. The raw material of channel 4, of the Dhamma channel, is basically thought, concept, image, anything discursive. It's the text underneath the picture. Yeah. So it takes a moment to actually identify these four channels in your experience. Now let's, in the textbooks they all start with Kaya, Vedana, Chitta, Dhamma, but in practice they not always start with body. Yeah. Often it starts with Vedana, it starts with something nice. Yeah. You walk along somewhere in an area you don't know, out of the window, nice sound. Yeah. There you got Vedana, pleasant sound. Ooh, yeah. You go closer, uh, you turn your body towards the, the source of the nice sound. Yeah. You listen, something in you changes. Yeah. Your breath goes a little deeper, your chest widens a little, maybe a little smile comes up. There you have Kaya, huh? body orients towards pleasant experience. You still don't know what it is. Yeah. So, you turn towards, you go towards, something in your step gets a little more springy, something in your chest widens. So you have Vedana, then you have Kaya, and then you have a, a kind of lightness of mood coming in, because you hear something pleasant, something in your mood gets brighter. Yeah? You get kind of keen, or you get delighted. You feel something delightful going into your mood. Yeah? So your, your note of mood goes a little, a, a couple of notes brighter. Yeah? And then finally, you know, channel 4 kicks in and says, oh, this is a bandoneon. Yeah, this is a milonga. This is one of Piazzolla's magic compositions or so. Yeah, that's the text line underneath the experience. But it starts off with, ooh, and then you orient towards, and then it affects your mood, you get interested, you get delighted, and then kicks in the naming. Yeah, it says, okay, bandoneon, not just a harmonica. Yes, this is not anybody, this is a milonga. Yeah, this is, we can hear the beat, and then, ah, oh, this is one of Piazzolla's compositions. So you have that all the time. Yeah? Satipatthanas are running when you're in the food line, on the way to the loo, uh, the last sitting when you're finally succumbing to the sweetness of sleep, yeah, or so. All these satipatthanas take place any moment. Now, once you identify the, f the various grounds, yeah, you will begin to become aware how you hop. Now, for some things, it doesn't make really sense to hop. Yeah? You're, you're anxious. So, today we were asked about fear. What do we do when, when we have fear? We think about the things that are frightening us, isn't it? 
Our mind goes into frantic probability scenarios where we go through worst case patterns or we're looking for things that make us more safe. We look how we can get there or we can get away from there. We think. We're sad. We think. We're angry. We think. We're doubtful. We think. Our, our general response to any strong emotion is usually some form of thinking. So, in other words, we feel that quality of experience, generally in the body. We experience a profound mood, yeah, or something that threatens to become bigger. Any of the big moods threaten not, are not just unpleasant, they also threaten to take over the whole screen. You know? Now I'm going to transform into a thin black thread of sheer fear. Yeah? That's all that's left of me. All the rest of my life is out. My love, my capacities, all everything I've ever learned to do, all this disappears. I'm just going to turn into a thin black thread of sheer fear. Yeah. Or rage. You know, I feel this incredible archaic rage rising up from me. Yeah? And then I lose all control. The last thing is I hear my loud voice. I sense white knuckles in the room. And then it's a big blur. And when I come to my senses again, everybody looks dreadfully embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) So generally, emotions not just come with the unpleasantness of intensity, they also come with the threat to be overwhelming, to be flooding, to be taking us completely out of our uh, capacity to manage life, isn't it? So if at that moment we are capable of staying in the body, tremendous amount of help. If we can handle fear in the body, if we can handle rage in the body, if we can handle doubt in the body, it is very unlikely that we will feed these states by our thoughts. So just the capacity to hang in on channel one rather than hop to channel four and you know, crank, crank up the story and rummage around in our memory banks. Because, you know, in Channel 4, you have past and future. Anything can go there. It doesn't have to have any semblance to, to veracity, to truth, to experience. You know, you're in sheer memory or in sheer fantasy there. Yeah? While in terms of body, it's always present time. It's always happening now. You only have one time to deal with. You never get yesterday's knee pain. Yeah? You never get tomorrow's you know, blockage in your neck vertebrae. When, when you get something, it's, it's now. When you get something in the body, it's, it's now. It's anchored in the now. So just cutting back on your, on your tenses a little bit yeah, can be such a relief. So the capacity of being able to ground your attention in body means you, you can skip the past, you can skip the future, and you can actually bear the present. Yeah? That's not a big insight, but that may actually break your fear that the fear you experience now in a bearable way may become unbearable. This may actually break that fear's back. Just your capacity to stay with the unpleasantness of fear in your belly. One of my profound insights about embodiment happened on a bus stop. 30 plus years ago, when it was cold and it was night and I was hungry and I was freezing. And I did what most people do when they freeze. They kind of put up the shoulders and they kind of 
clenched her elbows closed, and my girlfriend said to me, breathe in your belly. Breathe in your belly. And I said, and I couldn't believe what she said, because it's the last thing you want to do, obviously, when you breathe in your belly, you feel more. So if you're cold, you don't want to feel cold, so you don't breathe in your belly, and you feel less cold, isn't it? But in fact, if you do that, if you breathe in your belly, if you're cold, you notice that the cold gets more bearable. <laughs> yeah. Because you enter more into your body, you become less defensive, the subjective quality of unpleasantness decreases if you do the totally counterintuitive thing, namely feel what you don't want to feel. Yeah. It's very simple. So Satipatthana makes use of some of that. Now, the exercises in these Satipatthana practices obviously go beyond this. It, Bodhi tells us a lot more. It tells us something about change, conditionality, about embodiment, about sensitivity, about energy, about sleep, about pleasure, about lust. You know, Bodhi tells us a lot. Uh, Vedana tells us a lot about economy, about how much we are seekers. Not seekers for truth, but seekers for pleasantness. Yeah. Chitta tells us a lot about our identification. What are the emotional realms we inhabit? Yeah. How quickly we jump into a, I'm a victim, I'm helpless, unfortunately I can't really do anything here, I need to find somebody who's really an expert, who's really strong, who takes care of me. You know, Either a big guy with a moustache or a mummy type <laughs> creature. Or, you, know, you know, how much we are operating under you know, basically learned patterns which go embarrassingly back to early, early days. Yeah? H3, we've decided this is the successful strategy, right? It has saved our, you know, saved our next end, but uh, H53, we're still doing it. Yeah? And what was then a brilliant move, and, 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 <laughs> and I just... <laughs> So chitta is hard work, and yet it's very revealing because we keep repeating things. Anything that repeats itself has something to do with how we are and what we do. Yeah? Because all things are impermanent, and if things that are impermanent keep occurring, that means we keep doing them. Yeah? And it's generally somebody not too far away from your medication cushion who has something to do with this. Yeah. Obviously, the government is to blame and the parents are to blame and you shouldn't have taken this school and you've had bad company in your early teens. And, you know, and, you know. But at some point, you know, when all blaming is done, <laughs> you know, there is one guy who is really most powerful in continuing this or not continuing this. And this guy uh, has something to do with you. you know? And that's part of the task of these four Satipatthanas. The fourth asks us to kind of use the thermometer or the litmus test. You know, it says, okay, awakening factors. Let's put that in and see. Okay, not much sati going, very little dhamma investigation. Oh, just a little bit of energy. Oh, this is not PT, no, no, no. No delight, no bliss. Definitely no pasadi. Forget samadhi and, you know, write off equanimity. Yeah, that was it. So, nivarana. Yeah. Okay. No, this is not sense desire. This is more aversion. And this peaceful bit. No, this is not peaceful. This is lethargy. This is lethargy. Yeah, so. 
then there's a little bit of doubt in there and an occasional twitch. That must be restlessness. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah? so you kind of you look at you you sample your state and you look how much of this is actually happening. Yeah? The honest question with hindrances, if you're not in jhana, basically the honest question is not do I have them. The honest question is which one is most dominant right now. <laughs> The big task of these four satipatthanas is basically fourfold. The Buddha says we are not really interested in letting go unless we have made four contemplations. The first of these contemplations is, does something arise? And if it does arise, how does it arise? Yeah? What makes it arise? Samudaya. It's the same as in the second noble truth or ennobling truth. Yeah. This quality, does something arise? Already when you acknowledge that something isn't just there, you know, in its primordial suchness ever and ever, yeah, if it actually arises and disappears, you have a fluctuation. It means the thing is not permanent. Yeah. That's already good news. Yeah. If you acknowledge that of the worst things in your life, that, it is not, that they are not permanent, much is one. Because sometimes we believe that only the good things are impermanent and the bad ones are really kind of, you know, we're condemned to a permanence of our hang-ups or our supposed hang-ups. So acknowledge arising and to acknowledge its contrary. The Pali word for this is atangamana, which is a, it's a very poetic word for uh, going down. It's used for the sun going down, usually in Pali. But that something you investigate both arises and after a while disappears. Yeah. If you can notice that of anything you are besotted with or you are frightened of or you feel obsessed by, any of this arising and disappearing pattern is good news. Because when it does that, it will do that in accordance with some conditions. Conditions you can find about, out about and conditions you can bring about. You can develop if it is necessary or you can put aside if it is useful. The other two qualities, less famous, much less famous than the arising and the, the uh, disappearing of things, is how much pleasure something gives you. you know, what is, what's the hit? What's the payoff? So before we have acknowledged the payoff of any one thing we want to investigate or we feel we would like to let go, but somehow we can't let go, we need to acknowledge what we get from this. Yeah? The term for this, for those of you interested, is asada, is the enjoyment of a thing, what we get out of something. Sometimes we're very quick to say, I want to get rid of this, this is bad, you know, this is the suffering. That's the fourth one. It's the price we pay. It's the, it's the disadvantage or the danger of something. The Pali for this is Adinava. We're quite, very quick to point out that things are um, unpleasant or, or painful or we would like uh, disadvantages. But we're not so quick at actually acknowledging what we get out of things. Yeah? And we wonder why we don't let go of them, because we don't acknowledge what we get out of them. Think of, you know, there are many advantages to depression, for example. You know? 
it's obviously you're lethargic, it doesn't look good, you know, you have dark rings around your eyes, and uh, mood is not bright, it doesn't feel pleasant, but there are many advantages to depression. You don't have to take responsibility. You know, if you don't have to take responsibility, nothing can go wrong. You don't have to do uh, uncomfortable things. You take little, little risk. You know, you can... Maybe you're not just getting the disadvantage of a depression, maybe you get also its advantage. Somebody takes care of you, maybe. You know? Your mommy or your wife or your government. You know? There may be quite a number of perks in being depressed. Being depressed may help you to not have to face things you're afraid of doing. Yeah. And so forth. Depression is just an example. You think anger is a bad thing because your friends don't give you trust if you blow up at them. Anger feels unpleasant. Anger looks bad. It's poo-pooed in society. Nobody takes you serious if you're angry. That's really bad, particularly if you're right. Huh? It's very annoying to be right and to be angry, and they can just write you off because you're angry. <laughs> really annoying. But you know, anger has many kicks. You may, you may have power when you're angry. Yeah? Maybe they're afraid of you, and suddenly, while they generally don't do what you say, when you're angry, they do it. If you have never learned to feel power, other than being angry, it may feel quite attractive to be angry, because then you feel power. Yeah? So the, the disadvantage of Anger is very obvious, but the advantage is not acknowledged. And you wonder why your anger doesn't go away. Yeah? So the Buddha says, only if we have acknowledged very soberly and with clear introspection the arising of things, the disappearance of things, the perk, the advantage, the enjoyment of a thing, and the disadvantage, the price, the danger in a thing, only then are we willing to let go that thing. Only then, when we are cleared, the pain outweighs the pleasure. That the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. Only then are we willing to look for an exit. Only then are we willing to let go of something and look for uh, freeing ourselves therefrom. So ultimately, this is what Satipatthanas ask us to do. To hold up these four areas, to establish the greatest possible scrutiny, and to contemplate what's happening in there, and contemplate whether this is advantageous or not, whether this is arising or disappearing, whether this is worthy investing in, or whether we should take the freedom to actually not invest in and see what kind of space opens behind it. Good. There'll be more to that, but I'm, we will have to continue this in some way. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I was counting on you a little bit on this, because... Um, you know where this is from. This is basically a, it's a, a bigger project. Yeah? The, um, this is more than a weekend project. Yeah? It's more than a week's project. Although the, the teaching, actually, the sutta, actually, at the very end, promises, uh, sorry, this is no money back guarantee now coming, yeah? promises, you know, if you do establish mindfulness in these four uh, satipatthanas for seven years, and then goes down six, five, four, three, two, one, and then finally goes down to fortnight, and finally goes down to seven days, uninterrupted practice of sati in those four sadhipatanas. He uh, promises freedom, complete freedom, yeah. awakening, freedom from the asavas.
So maybe you haven't hit it right in the first year, but um, we hope to come back. And we hope you come back. Good. Let me end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.